This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Uma Pagan Ampake Pagan, and this. This is the kind of music that's usually playing in my head when I'm reading a James Rollins novel. He writes action adventures, he writes techno thrillers, he's the best-selling author of the Sigma Force series of books, and I have him with me today right here on Bookmark. Hi, I'm James Rollins. I'm the author of the Sigma Force series. It's a series that blends historical mystery, scientific intrigue, and basically is a large roller coaster of adventure. Fantastic. So, James, before we get into it, tell people what the latest one is about. It's your 16th Sigma Force novel, am I right? It's the 12th Sigma novel. Uh, the 12th uh, novel, The Seventh Plague, starts when an archaeologist who vanished into the Egyptian desert about two years prior, him along with the, his team of researchers, uh, they vanish. But two years later, he comes uh, stumbling out of the desert. Uh, unfortunately, he dies before he can tell his story. But his body sort of offers some intriguing clues maybe to his fate. Number one, it appears that his body was partially mummified, uh, as if he had undergone this gruesome process while he was still alive. And number two, he seems to be harboring a plague organism, a, uh, a disease that begins to spread through Cairo and beyond. Sigma Force is called in to investigate and find out where this gentleman came from and where this disease might have originated in an attempt to find a cure before this one plague cascades into a series of plagues the same series of plagues that that is uh, documented in the book of Exodus uh, during the time of Moses. What I love about these books, and Seventh Plague being am- uh, among them, is that they're incredible pieces of escapism, but at the same time, um, any any piece of fiction with illustrations gets me because it feels like I'm learning something. <laughs> and I'm curious as to whether you feel you're learning something as you're writing these novels. Oh, definitely. I mean, I've always got my antenna up for, you know, that next maybe historical mystery, uh, that piece of history that maybe ends in a question mark, something I can explore in the pages of a novel. But I'm also looking for that bit of scientific intrigue, uh, maybe something that's cutting edge, something that's topical, something that I can maybe explore during the, in the some of those same pages, and looking for something that might connect those two together. That's sort of the challenging part in building one of my novels, is finding that connection between something historical and something cutting edge and modern. As a reader... As as a reader, as a viewer of these sorts of even movies and television shows, I I want to be duped, right? Because I know because I know there's a formula, and yet I've read so much of it, I've seen so much of it, I want to be tricked into thinking that that formula doesn't exist. And that's something you do incredibly well. And I was wondering if it's after all of these novels, if it's becoming harder and harder to trick someone like me. Well, that is a challenge is to you know, try to blend you know, fact and fiction as well as I can so you can't hopefully pick the two apart. And though at the end of my books, I do, I do have a section that's you know, where I do lay that out, sort of what's true, what's not section to each of my novels, where I do pull aside the curtain and, and, and expose you know, exactly how much is true and how much isn't, both for that reason, but also in case anybody has any interest in anything I raise in the book, I hope I leave them a few breadcrumbs to follow. Uh, but again, this is my... 12th Sigma novel, but my 33rd book. 
So at this point, I think I've just tried to destroy the world 33 times. But, uh, you know, I still have have a couple more doomsday scenarios in my back pocket uh, that I can still build a few more novels from. But again, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge when you're writing a series, especially that there's certain expectations from your readers. They expect certain things, yet at the same time, they, they, they want to be surprised, like you mentioned. And that does become more challenging because there's only so many times a magician can do the same trick in front of an audience before they begin maybe to pick apart exactly what you're doing. So my goal as a writer um, is to keep uh, sort of shifting that 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 playing field a little bit, um, shifting those pieces around that chessboard, so to speak. Um, I could, whenever they ask somebody, ask me, you know, you know, Jim, what would you recommend uh, as a, as a tidbit or to, you know, something you can you can tell somebody that wants to be a writer? What would you suggest right. they do? And I tell people, well, you know, you should be reading every day. I mean, you should be writing every day. Uh, you need to expect to write about a million words before you should expect to be published. Uh, you need to practice your your craft and, and hone your prose. But you should be also reading every night. Because whatever problem you have during your writing day, whether it's how to do dialogue, how to introduce a character, that forms a little knot in your head. And when you're reading at night and you're seeing an example of how that's been solved by that author, it begins to untangle that knot. So you're going to become a stronger writer by by writing every day and reading every night. And I still do that. I still carry a little notebook by my bedside. So when I am reading a book at night, I'll see something that uh, uh, that surprises me. As a, as, a, as a, again, I've been reading for decades now, and if something surprises me, an author's done something well. And so then I try to sort of what what does he what did he do? Why 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 did he catch me by surprise? And I try to borrow those tools when I can. So when I see an author doing something unique and different, um, I try to incorporate those. So I, I try not to to be a stagnant writer who writes the same thing over and over again, though there might be some, you know, the big tent poles of the story may be, may be familiar in regards to the big, the big science, the big history, the big worldwide threat. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty part of the story, the, the nuances of the story, oftentimes I do uh, switch that around because I am learning even today by, by reading every night. And, and what's What's that little piece of advice or nugget you have for the reader approaching your work? Because that's the one thing I get asked a lot because I'm more of a, I'm, I'm a bit of a writer, but I'm also, I always consider myself to be a reader first. And people always ask me, bookshops are intimidating. Where do I start? What do I do? How do I, how do I get into something? When I build my stories, I, I construct them almost like like a like a roller coaster ride. I I, I mentioned that in the, at the start, at the head of this talk, and you know my goal as as a writer is to hopefully take you on a wild ride. So that's all I'm going to ask my readers to do is just to enjoy the adventure. And but I think stories work best, novels work best when you turn that page to the last page and, you and close the book. That I'm leaving you with something to think about. But hopefully it's not something. Hopefully it's nothing that that's being force fed. You know, I want it to feel feel natural. Feel that when you're going through the course of the novel, that what I'm giving you is information you need to enjoy the adventure. But by the time you're done, actually finish the novel, I've uh, I've brought you somewhere where maybe you've uh, enlightened you about some certain aspect, or intrigued you, or hopefully uh, enough that you're going to follow some of those breadcrumbs that leave at the back of the book. Yeah, hopefully you're googling after that and trying to learn something new as well. Whenever I run into a to a reader, it says, you know, gosh, I was really curious about that part. So I went online because it just seemed unbelievable. But I, you know, I, I researched it. It's just shocking but true. So you know, I really enjoy when that happens. I also enjoy when sometimes the real world catches up with me. Um, uh, 60 Minutes, this program here in in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, a news program uh, did a did a, a report about. Uh, 
the way drones are being used by the by the military right now in regards to artificial intelligence and, and how much has progressed. Well, I just written a book uh, last year called Warhawk that uh, was specifically about the uh, the new generation of drones that are being used in warfare and the fact that they're bridging that that artificial intelligence uh, uh, gap. And they're they're leaving a lot of the uh, the kill orders, not to human uh, intervention, but to uh, to this artificial intelligence. And so, again, I wrote about that about uh, almost two years ago at this point, I guess. Yet, again, on 60 Minutes, I turned on this program, and, and here's this program, exactly what was uh, depicted in my book. And since then, I've, I've been uh, gotten a flurry of emails from readers saying they, they saw that 60 Minutes program. It reminded them of the book. So I like I love, sort of love when, when the real world sort of catches up with my novels. And that's happening, or at least that seems to be happening faster and faster these days. It is, and that is one of the challenges as a writer, uh, especially one that deals with science and technology like that is, uh, appears in my books, is oftentimes I'm writing on the fly. Uh, my last book, The Bone Labyrinth, uh, there was, which deals with some anthropological mystery, specifically the, uh, the origin of us as a human species uh, tied to uh, are interbreeding with with earlier uh, hominins, specifically the Neanderthals and the Novazins. And uh, as I was writing the book, this information kept changing. I was I was finding out you know things I was writing in the novel were already becoming dated. So I almost had to 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 to, to, to keep one hand you know connected to the internet, one hand typing, just to make sure that I was uh, staying current. So that is that's the challenge as a writer in this field is things do change so rapidly, even to the point where I've got to try to hustle when I'm writing a novel to keep current. With that in mind, though, is there any point at which you think to yourself, that's as far as I'm going to go in that, in, in pushing that envelope with creative license or with, you know, just projecting to the future? Or do you not hold yourself back in that way? No, I mean, I try to stay uh, relatively, you know, basically, whenever I start a novel, I, I pretty much start from a fairly grounded place. And, and yes, eventually, by the time you're at the end of the book, I'm going to take you beyond that horizon and, and look to maybe where this technology might be headed and how that might you know, challenge us as a human species. Um, and so, you know, I, I extrapolate to a certain point, but I, I try to, you know, ride the line between a, a, a technological thriller and science fiction. If you go too past past that horizon, you're going to end up into the science fiction territory. So I, I sort of draw a line to try to stay as as um, as, as real as possible, as, as of the moment as I can. So I'm not, I'm not stretching too far into the future. But like you mentioned before, it's the, the challenge is not to become outdated, is not to have your novel uh, come out. Because usually when I write a novel, it takes anywhere from six months to a year from the time I finish it till the time it's published. And so I fear happening at some point is that what I write is going to it's going to be outdated by the time it even gets published. The one thing I love about your novels, and I think the kind of science techno thriller, even historical thriller novels that I read, is that it seems to, and this is something purely by chance, my favorites seem to come from people, one who've had no actually formal training in writing, or come from some sort of sciences themselves, yourself, Michael Crichton. Um, what is it about, I guess, scientists or doctors that allows you to crack that code of fiction? Well, I think it's... it's have you worked it out? I think I, I have a theory. I, you know, my, my opinion is that, you know, basically, you know, people in the medical field specifically, and probably scientists in general, 
uh, we're mystery hunters. You know, we're, we're trying to solve problems. Uh, or, or either whether it's the medical case it's the, that, that, that you're trying to solve or whether it's that scientific puzzle you're trying to unravel. And so it, pretty much all novels are, are, are basically just uh, complicated puzzles. And so the fact that we're sort of geared, our minds sort of wired towards that puzzle sol- solving, I think that, that gears us more towards... Uh, you know, structuring story and structuring plot towards that uh, that big gigantic puzzle. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I think there's something about it because, um, and also I think there's a richness of the experience that you've had as a doctor or as a vet, or you know, that past helps possibly structure a kind of richer storyline. I think it maybe helps even from a from a character standpoint in regards to. Uh, I always tell. Uh, you know, when it comes to veterinary medicine, uh, my background is, you know, oftentimes I sometimes think I'm, I'm half psychiatrist, half veterinarian. Because oftentimes <laughs> the ailment of the pet is a reflection of uh, some type of psychological condition going on with the, with the, with the client. And so, um, you know, I think a part of that is that, you know, when we're dealing with, you know, somebody's, you know, a lot of people consider their pets their children. Uh, they have deep adult emotional bonds to them, and there's been scientifically proven that there's sort of a human-animal bond. And so, you know, working in that field for 15 years of, of you know, trying to balance uh, the needs of my client, the needs of my patients, uh, oftentimes I, I think uh, you know, that also becomes a uh, sort of a touchstone for for me being an author, is being able to to touch that human condition. So I, I went to your website. I've never been to your website. I've I've always only picked up your books from bookshops. And I went to your website for the first time after they told me I was going to speak to you. And I came across something that I, I don't think I've ever seen on anyone else's website, which was your recommendation of other authors to read. And it's a wonderful, wonderful list. I'm always shocked. I hear occasionally from authors that I've listened to speak or do book signings. And the questions come up, you know, what do you read? And a lot of unusually, I've heard people say things like, you know, gosh, I don't really read much fiction anymore. I'm generally just doing research, or I'm afraid that if I read fiction in my field, it's going to taint my own writing. Or I hear that a lot as well. Yeah. By that. And I am of the exact opposite position. Like, as I mentioned before, you know, that's where I get inspiration is from other authors, you know, either seeing how they fail or seeing how they succeed. Both of them help me. And uh, so, you know, to me, I love to read. I, 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 that's the reason I write is because I was reading. And I, to, even when I'm like in the what I call the middle doldrums of a book, I don't know why it is. I've written 33 books, but I'm very excited when I'm beginning a book. But right when I'm in the middle of the book, I, I suddenly realize I've lost all ability, all talent. What I'm writing is crap. But by the time I get to the end of the book, I'm very happy with it again. But in that middle doldrums, that middle part in between, oftentimes what gets me through that is is reading other works, is is seeing, you know, getting inspiration from reading other writers. And so I get very excited. I'm still a bit of a fanboy when it comes to some of the authors I meet out there. You know, when I got to meet Clive Cusliffe for the first time, I was practically tongue-tied. And just, uh, you know, being able to meet Michael Crichton very briefly at one point was just a huge honor. So, to, again, I'm still pretty much a fanboy myself. I think those you've you've just named two authors that I grew up reading because those were the authors my mum read, and I would pick up her worn copies of the book and start reading both Clive Cussler and Michael Crichton. I always tell people you know, the one reason I read was because of my mom too. Is you know, my mom never told us we had to read, but she just read a lot, and so she would drag us to the library or. Again, similar to you, I'd find used copies of these paperbacks on her shelf, and I'd pull one down and read it. 
so it's, it's sort of fun, funny that uh, you know, your mom influenced your reading habits, as did my mom. So before I let you go, though, James, I've got a I've got a confession to make, and it's something I want to talk to you very quickly about. But my first my first James Rollins book that I read was not Sigma Force. It was your adaptation of Indiana Jones. Okay. Because I, yet again, huge, huge Indiana Jones fans. As I cannot tell I. you. Yeah, I cannot tell you the number of times I've seen those movies. And and this is what I've always wanted to ask, because I, I don't think in my years of doing this show that I've ever spoken to someone who's adapted one of these things, because screenplays aren't books. Screenplays are at best blueprints to something just intangible. Where do you go about filling in those gaps? That must have been the hardest thing ever. It was. It was also the, the, the most fun. Because uh, basically when you're writing a screenplay, and I always consider that, you know, a short stories make great screenplays. Uh, you know, trying to make a screenplay out of a novel is really difficult because so much has to end up on the cutting room floor. But when I get to run that in reverse, so I'm taking a screenplay and turning it into a novel, I get to add a lot more. So there's a whole opening sequence that occurs in my novel that's nowhere in the movie, and there's about another 12 different scenes that I wrote that are nowhere in the movie. But also, when you know your goal as a writer is to take your reader and put them in the in the in the shoes of that character. You know, when you're watching Indiana Jones, you're you're watching Indiana Jones. You're watching this character go through these events. Whereas when you're reading Indiana Jones' novel, you know, I want you to be Indiana Jones. I want you to wear that hat and crack that whip. And so it's a different perspective to be in their head. And it was sort of a, it was it was challenging to put myself in Indiana Jones' actual skull. And you know, how's he thinking? How's he reacting? And I even had some issues when it came to uh, to dealing with some of the scenes because of that situation. There's again, I hope I'm not ruining anything for any viewers or out there, or listeners out there. Oh, it's it's, it's almost a decade old. You can't spoil yeah, it. Yeah, so no no spoiler. <laughs> point, but but in, in 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 the uh, in the last movie, we we know that Indiana Jones' father died. Uh, but as you know, it's never explained how he dies in the in the movie. He's just passed away by the time that third movie, I mean the fourth movie, comes out. And me as a, as a writer, I've got to write from that perspective of Indiana Jones thinking about the death of his father. Now, it's okay if you're watching him to see a, see a, you know, a picture of his father on the mantle and sort of have a sad expression so he misses his dad. But if I'm writing that, that scene, you know, I've got to be in that character's head. And so I've got to, you know, he's probably going to reflect on how his father died and how his father died is going to impact how he's thinking about his father. Does his father die peacefully? Does his father die violently? Did his father die, die mysteriously? However he died is going to reflect on how his, his, uh, he's going to re- react to that. So I talked to the screenplay writer, uh, David, uh, David Kep, and I said, you know, hey, you know, I'm coming to this scene and I sort of would like to know how his father died for this, for this very reason I just explained to you. And David goes, yeah, you're right. You really do need to know how he died. So, you know, in my opinion, you know, he just died peacefully in his easy chair reading his favorite book by the fire. So that's the way I wrote the scene. And then I got a note from uh, the production company saying, hey, you know, we, we don't really want you to tell how he dies because that might become <laughs> a, you know, a pivotal point to a future, uh, future movie is, is exactly how his father died. So we want to leave that open-ended. So I had to sort of, uh, you know, backtrack a little bit and, and, and shade around the corners a little bit to make that work. So it was a challenge. It wasn't, it wasn't mainly basically being a monkey copying the screenplay into a novel format. It was, it was actually quite a challenging but fun project. 
Yeah, no, I, I, that's the thing. I mean, I always have, it's interesting. I always, I always buy those books. I always buy those film adaptations for that reason, because it feels like it's a lot, it feels like it's, it's a tough job for the writer, especially, and also because I suppose most of your novels are solitary works. And then this is something that's collaborative in many ways. Exactly. It's a very different process. I, I was invited to, uh, to Lucas Films, where I was able to, 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 to catch some of the dailies that were being shot. So I'd have to make sure because what was written on the page was different from what was actually on the screen. So I was, again, having to sort of write on the fly because I wanted the book to come out the same day the movie came out. So I had to be writing the same time they were filming. And so uh, that was challenging because a lot of times, uh, you know, I'd be thinking it was going one way. I'd see the dailies. It'd be, it'd be a different way. So I'd have to go ahead and alter my, my alter the story to, to try to make it as match as close to match as close as I could. Is that something you'd ever venture doing again? It has to be a special project. I mean, I, I, I you know, I like being sort of the judge, jury, and executioner of my own work. And um, so being that that tied down by uh, by a story that's already sort of sort of sort of locked in stone is a little bit difficult for me. But you know, I. You know, I love Indiana Jones. I remember when the first movie was coming out. Um, I wanted to see it the first day. I wanted to be in the first first showing. And uh, that same day, my family had booked a whitewater rafting trip. So I remember just like paddling <laughs> as fast as I could to get to try to get make sure I could get that get to that uh, showing. You know, and actually, I had to go right from the river to the theater to actually make that show. And so I actually went to the theater sopping wet. And uh, which is not a bad way to watch the first Indian, you know, in Raiders is to, you know, be sopping wet while you're watching it. So it was, uh, you know, to to get that call and say, hey, you know, we're your books have been compared to Indiana Jones a lot in the past. And we're looking for a writer that might be able to, to novelize this latest film. Would you be willing to do that? And I was like, didn't have to think twice. Yes. Yes, please. Fantastic. Uh, James, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I've been speaking to James Rollins, his brand new novel, The Seventh Plague, the latest installment in his best-selling Sigma 4 series, is now available in all good bookstores. Go read it. It's marvellous stuff. You've been listening to Bookmark on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.